Friends, what a joy it is to sing of our great hope together, to confess that Christ has purchased the church with His own blood, to confess that He abides with her and will supply her with every grace she needs to press forward to glory. Such a joyous confession of hope, I think, requires an exhortation. And I can't help but think of that wonderful exhortation from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. That exhortation is given to us to build up the church, the bride of Christ, the household of God. Listen to what Peter says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Beloved, let's now glorify Him together as we listen carefully to His Word. Please turn with me, if you will, in your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 31. And let's ask the Lord for His help as we approach His Word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would now open our eyes to see how Your manifold wisdom is displayed through the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for ourselves that as we hear Your Word, that we would be humbled by Your Spirit and eager to serve one another in the strength that You have supplied. Teach us to put on the mind of our Savior so that we would do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. May we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. Some things are simply more visible or prominent than others like this pulpit in this room. It's, it kind of sticks out, doesn't it? It's right in the center. The sound desk, not so much. Some people are simply more visible than others. Uh, it may have something to do with how they look or what they do. Their visibility may not have anything to do with their nature or their status or even their earnings. So, for example... A news anchor is more visible than the cameraman. After all, his is the face that you see on TV. And yet, without the work of that cameraman, you wouldn't be able to see his face. That would not be possible. One cannot do without the other. Or think about what happens after you watch a movie. At the end of the movie, a long list of credits roll on the screen, but none of us are really interested in, in reading all those names or even getting to know those people. All we care about are the actors in the movie, the prominent players. And yet we know that without that long list of names, that movie would not have been made. Those people are indispensable. If the news anchor were to say, I have no need of a cameraman, that still wouldn't change the fact that he needed one. Now, at the church at Corinth, there were some members who had received some very visible and remarkable speaking gifts, like the gift of tongues. 
Uh, make no mistake, this was a significant gift. Uh, a manifestation of the Holy Spirit, it was, given to some for the building up of the church. Tongue speaking was the supernatural ability to communicate God's infallible revelation in a language that was foreign to the speaker and sometimes foreign to those who heard it, which is why God gave another gift, the gift of interpretation of tongues, where either the speaker himself or herself or someone else in the congregation would be able to interpret what was spoken so that the church could understand and be edified by the Word of God. But instead of being humbled and grateful for what Christ was doing through the Spirit in the church, these Corinthian Christians began to see their gift through cultural lenses, and as a result of that began to feel superior to other members. They thought that only those who had received the more visible speaking gifts were the ones who were truly spiritual, truly important. Some of them even thought that they did not need uh, those other members who did not have those speaking gifts. And when the Apostle Paul heard about this, he wrote to them, informing them that their view of the gifts was deficient. And so Paul says to the Corinthians, I want you to know that every Christian has the Holy Spirit. No one is less spiritual than the other. He says this in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 6. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Paul says that the Spirit who gave them the speaking gifts is also the one who gives less flashy gifts to others. So don't be arrogant, says Paul. Rather humble yourself in light of how God works. There is a Trinitarian design to these grace gifts, which means they serve the triune God's redemptive purposes for His church. God, in His infinite saving wisdom, has gifted each one of you differently, says Paul. He works differently in different members for a unified purpose. There is a diversity of gifts in one body, and when we labor according to God's wisdom the congregation starts to reflect a Trinitarian glory. It is the sovereign will of the Spirit that determines how He will work through each individual to build up the body of Christ. So Paul wants these puffed-up Corinthians to know that they do not constitute the body on their own. No, they need the Spirit-empowered ministry of other members in their lives if they were going to grow spiritually. And so, in these next few verses, Paul labors to teach the Corinthians that God wisely designed the church with diverse gifts to accomplish the unified purpose of their spiritual growth. And those who are spiritual, that is, those who are Christians, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, need to understand this. They need to have the mind of Christ, and to have the mind of Christ is to think about the church in this way. And so here's the first lesson that we can learn from this passage. Number one, membership is a spiritual matter. Membership is a spiritual matter. Look at verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. 
Paul continues to address the Corinthians about spiritual gifts by using the human body as an analogy. Uh, we know he's talking about a human body because of the various body parts he mentions in verse 15 and 16 and 21. Uh, Paul says the human body is one entity made up of members or parts, and yet it is those individual parts that make up the whole. Friends, there is nothing in existence quite like the human body. And the complexity of its structure reflects the creative glory of our triune king. Remember that God has created us in his image and he has crowned us with glory and honor. David puts it like this in Psalm 139 verses 13 to 14. He writes, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And just as each of our members, our bones, our joints, our internal organs, though diverse in structure and function, yet they contribute to the overall unified health of the body, so it is, says Paul, with Christ. Isn't that a little odd? I mean, you would expect him to say, so it is with the church. But for Paul, this is just shorthand for the body of Christ. To be spiritual, to be a Christian, is to be in Christ. And to be in Christ means to be in the body of Christ, in spiritual union with other Christians. And this is where he's heading. Look down at verse 27. Now you, plural, you all, are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Now, how did all of this happen? How did this happen? How did it come about? Well, look at verses 13 to 14. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. We were all baptized, says Paul, from various backgrounds, Jew, Gentile, the slave, the free man. We were all immersed into. That's what the word baptized means. We were baptized in one spirit into one body. Something happened to us, says Paul. The same spirit who indwells us and who works in us also united us together in one body. Friends, this is the result of the completion of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. This is what John the Baptist said would happen. Mark 1, verse 8, I have baptized you with water, but he, that's Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It is Christ himself who does this. He is the one who inaugurates the new covenant and sends the promise of the Father at Pentecost. John bore testimony to this, John 1.33. He says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's talking about Jesus. This is what Jesus said would happen at Pentecost. Acts 1 verse 5, for John baptized with water but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. 
Friends, this is what the Old Testament prophets said would happen when God would make a new covenant with his people. Isaiah said that God would pour out his spirit on people like water on a thirsty land. Beloved, this is what happened to us at our conversion. When the spirit regenerated us, when we were born again and when we put our trust in Jesus. Now, perhaps you are not a Christian and you're wondering, well, what is all this baptism of the spirit stuff? Why is this necessary? Why does God need to baptize people with the Holy Spirit? Well, that's because Scripture teaches us that we are estranged from God. We are alienated from Him. From a spiritual standpoint, irrespective of how we live, religiously or irreligiously, irrespective of how we might look or act, God says we have all forsaken Him. We have turned to our own wisdom, and the Bible calls that sin. We're all sinners who stand under His judgment. We are lost. We are dead in our sins and transgressions. We're not overflowing with spiritual life, but we're spiritually dead. But God, who has eternal life in Himself, in His great mercy, sent His Son into the world to die in the place of sinners and rise from the dead so that those who believe in Him through the Holy Spirit may be united to Him and receive God's life, His eternal life, the life of God Himself. Friend, we are saved because God rescued us out of darkness and He has baptized us. He has immersed us. He has plunged us into the life of His Son. And He has made us members of His family, members of the household of God. Friends, there are many paths to destruction and everlasting hell. Many theories, many religions, many pathways to self-improvement even. But there is only one way to eternal life. And He is a person. Listen to what John says. And this is the testimony. This is our witness. This is the good news that we proclaim. That God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. That's 1 John 5, 11 to 12. So friend, do you desire eternal life? Do you want to be saved from eternal damnation? Then acknowledge that you are a sinner before God. Agree with your Maker's assessment of you. Acknowledge that you are a sinner before God and acknowledge the folly of trusting in your own wisdom. And then turn, turn to the wisdom of His Word that says, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This is how anyone can be saved and this is how you can be saved even today if you turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus. Now when Paul says we were all made to drink of one spirit, He's echoing Jesus' words from John 7. John 7, verse 37 to 39. Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as it yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So the disciples were living in an odd time period in redemptive history. 
Uh, they were like believers under the old covenant, except that Jesus had come. The one to whom all the promises pointed to was with them, and yet he had not finished his redemptive work. The Spirit had not yet been given. But when he did finish his work, when he died and when he rose again and he ascended to the Father, he sent the Spirit at Pentecost, inaugurating the new covenant age. The Apostle Peter saw, all those, saw the events at, at Pentecost as the fulfillment of Joel 2.28, when God in the last days would pour out His Spirit on all flesh. And when this happened, Peter boldly proclaimed the gospel, and those who heard the word repented and were baptized, and 3,000 people were added to the church. They were converted under the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. They were born again and indwelt by the Spirit. This was the work of the Holy Spirit, baptizing all kinds of people into one body. And notice how Luke describes this happening. Listen to Luke's words, Acts 2.47. And the Lord, that's Jesus, added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 5.14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women, they were added to the Lord, which means they were added to the church. They became members of the body of Christ. Acts 11.24, and a great many people were added to the Lord. They were incorporated into the body of Christ. Brothers, membership is a spiritual matter. Membership is a spiritual matter. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. When we talk about membership at Grace Church, this is what we mean. Biblical membership is not like joining a social club or a gym or a library where you pay your dues in order to gain certain benefits. No, that sort of membership has nothing to do with your identity. Tomorrow, if that gym or library burns down to the ground, you will still retain your identity. You will still find useful things to do. But biblical membership is a matter of your identity in Christ. This is what the Lord Jesus has done to you. He has made you a member of His body. To be a Christian means you are not a free-floating individual, but a person who has been united by the Spirit through faith to other members. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Jesus has done this through His Spirit. And to submit to His Lordship is to acknowledge this. It is to trust in His wisdom and join a local church. If you're a Christian and you've become a member of the church universal, then become a member of a local congregation. Commit to other believers in love and serve the body with your gifts. This is why we practice membership at Grace Church. Not because we are traditionalists, uh, not because we think it's a clever way to build team spirit. No, we practice it because it's a visible expression of what Christ has done spiritually and invisibly. This is his idea. Your identity is that you are a holy community with obligations to God and to one another. And this is why you cannot say to one another, just like those Corinthians were saying to one another, I have no need of you. No, our identity is that we are God's people. We are the body of Christ. I know in my own country and in many other parts of the world, when some Christians think of membership, they think of it as an alliance with a certain denomination. 
that enables them to baptize their unbelieving children, secure a, a wedding venue, or even a burial plot. Friends, that is a worldly way to think about membership, and it dishonors the work of Christ. Beloved, the book of Acts bears testimony to the truth that the Lord Jesus Himself was adding. He was adding to His church, making people members of His body by His Spirit, whom He sent at Pentecost. So 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is clear that all believers drink or share in the Holy Spirit, and they do so from the time when they are incorporated into the body of Christ at conversion. This is really important. Why is this so important? It's important because there are some who don't believe this. There are some Pentecostal and charismatic groups who believe that the baptism of the Spirit or spirit baptism is not something that happens to you at conversion, uniting you to the body of Christ, but that it is a second blessing experience that happens after conversions, and it is evidenced by speaking in tongues. This is a second experience, they believe, that will bless the believer with the fullness of the Spirit in order to have power in ministry. So what you end up having as a result of this teaching is that there are two classes of Christians. You have the basic uh, born-again, ordinary Christians, and then you have the super-duper Christians, the super-duper spirit-baptized, tongue-speaking, ministry, powerhouse Christians. Well, friends, this interpretation is unbiblical to say the least. It creates division in the body, and the work of the Spirit is not to create division but unity. So one author says, what does this say to the convert? It says, you have been doomed to a grim life. What has this teaching done for the convert? It has shamefully degraded the work of the Savior and the Spirit in His salvation. Effectual calling, regeneration, justification, adoption, and definitive sanctification have been made to appear most inadequate. Certainly, this is unbiblical. Churches that are named full gospel churches hold to this view. So if you hear the name full gospel... That's the view that they espouse, unlike you who have about 25 ml of the gospel. Now, you have to understand how they arrive at this interpretation. They arrive at this interpretation by reading the book of Acts incorrectly. Brothers, we should not read everything in the book of Acts as normative or prescriptive for us today. Remember that Luke's purpose for writing that book is to carefully document the spread of the gospel in those foundational years. We are meant to read it in light of Jesus' promise in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You remember Acts 1, 8? Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Luke documents that progress for us. Now, what is it that these groups misinterpret in the book of Acts that leads them to this idea that there is a post-conversion spirit baptism evidenced by speaking in tongues. Well, Pentecost is the first incident that they point to. Oh, the disciples were already believers, and then this happened. But remember, friends, Pentecost is unique in the history of redemption. Pentecost marks the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament and the inauguration of the age to come. Those disciples were like Old Testament believers 
entering the new covenant. They were entering the new covenant experience of the Holy Spirit. We should not expect that in our day. To expect Pentecost to be repeated again and again would to be to, to miss the point of Pentecost in redemptive history. Besides, there was a mighty rushing wind and divided tongues of fire that appeared and rested on the 120 that were gathered at a house. That never gets repeated again throughout the book. Now Luke records three other incidents after Pentecost where the apostles lay hands on people and they receive the Spirit and speak in tongues. What about that? This is what these groups cite to argue for a post-conversion second blessing experience of the Spirit. And those incidents are found in Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19. So open your Bibles to Acts 8, and we'll move very quickly through these passages, 8, 10, and 19. Let's look at those briefly. Now, by the time you get to Acts 8, we are told that the gospel has gone beyond Jerusalem. A great persecution arose, forcing believers now to go into all Judea and Samaria. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. What's happening? Jesus is keeping His promise. That's what's happening. In Acts 8, we read that Philip goes down to Samaria and he preaches the gospel. Look at verse 14, Acts 8, 14. We read that the apostles heard that Samaria had received the word of God. In fact, verse 8 says that there was much joy in the city. Verse 12 says that many men and women were even baptized. Now, when the apostles heard about this, they sent Peter and John to pray for them because they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so Peter and John come, they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Actually, this passage says nothing about tongues. Although I think there must have been some visible manifestation because Simon the sorcerer saw something, didn't he? He saw something that prompted him to take out his wallet and say to the apostle, I'd like to buy some Holy Spirit, please, how much? You see, the reason apostolic presence is required for this to happen is so that the church knows without a shadow of doubt that God's gospel is going forth, starting with the Jews, Acts 2, the Samaritan, Acts 8, and then the Gentiles, Acts 10. It's not written for us to infer that there is a second blessing experience. Friends, the spirit baptisms in Acts 2, 8, and 10 point to something unique in redemptive history, the progression of the gospel to all nations by the command of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Acts 10, we see that Peter is told to go preach the gospel to Cornelius and his household. Uh, right before that, Paul is converted. Remember how Paul is converted? He's struck blind, and then Ananias comes and lays his hands on him, and then he receives his sight, and also he receives the Holy Spirit, and now his scales fall off and he can see. Nobody wants that experience for some reason. And as Peter is preaching the gospel in Acts 10, 44, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard and they spoke in tongues, the text says. When Peter saw this, he said, whoa, they've become Christians. They've received the Holy Spirit just like us. Let's baptize them. You see, unlike the Samaritans who were baptized in water first and then given the Spirit, these people were given the Spirit and then baptized. So the point is not to teach us process. The point is to teach us that something new is happening. It's not to teach a second blessing theology, but to see the new covenant work of Christ spreading through His witnesses. God was bearing witness with signs and wonders. Plus, when Peter explained this incident to the other apostles, look down at Acts 10 verse 16, 
he told others, When I saw this, I thought of Jesus' words, who said he would baptize people with the Holy Spirit. And then look at the response of the other apostles, Acts 10, 18. This is very instructive. They rejoice, saying, God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. They've become Christians. This is how they interpret the baptisms. In Acts 19, there's another interesting incident. Paul is going through Ephesus, and he finds some disciples of John the Baptist. And Paul asks them, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? Implying what? That you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe. You don't need to go to seminary to learn that, figure that one out. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Look at their answer. They said, dude, there's a Holy Spirit? And Paul says, you guys are not very good disciples of John the Baptist, are you? I mean, you guys must have been sleeping in class. The whole ministry of John was to point to Jesus who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so after hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And Paul laid hands on them and they received the Spirit. They began to speak in tongues and prophesying. And they prophesied. Beloved, the Spirit baptisms in Acts are not normative. They were done through the hands of the apostles to authenticate God's word of promise. The same Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 that all believers drink or share in the Holy Spirit and do so from when? From the time when we are incorporated into the body of Christ at conversion. Besides, this is similar to the language in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2. Remember 1 Corinthians 10, verse 2? He says, Our fathers were baptized into Moses in cloud and sea. What Paul means by being baptized into Moses is that the Israelites were initiated into the old covenant community under Moses' leadership. They were saved and formed into a distinct congregation. Similarly, to be baptized into one spirit means to be initiated into the new covenant community of Christ. Friends, when we hear the gospel and are regenerated by the Spirit and believe, that is when we are baptized by the Holy Spirit and are united to Christ and to other believers in Christ. I hope you can see that. And because Christ has accomplished this by His Spirit, it would be dishonoring to Him if we did not acknowledge His wisdom and instead turn to our own wisdom. And this is what some people in the church were doing. There were some at the church who did not have the word gifts, the speaking gifts, and so they began to rely on their cultural thinking and began to feel small and rejected and inadequate. And so here's the second lesson we can learn from this passage. Don't underestimate your gifts and your place in the church. Don't underestimate your gifts and your place in the church. Paul continues to use the analogy of the human body to correct their thinking, and this is what he says. Look at verse 15 to 16. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. You know, I, I love the way how Paul does this. He always teaching the Corinthians, right? It's like when you teach your kids math and you say, three fingers, two fingers. What's, what's three plus two? A 
Okay, three fingers, two fingers, count how many fingers, right? This is how he's teaching them about the value uh, of gifts. Now, you have to remember what was happening at Corinth. These members who had speaking gifts like the gift of tongues were so consumed by their self-importance that in their presence, other members began to feel useless and insignificant. Those puffed-up Corinthians exercised their gifts for selfish ambition. They didn't exercise them in love. They didn't have a desire to serve and build up the body. And so Paul uses this analogy. He says, come, listen, let me, let me try and explain this to you. Imagine if your body parts could talk. What if your foot, the lowest part of your body, you know, that part that you stand on, the one that has to come in contact with the dirt, if the foot said, man, that hand has a sweet position in the body, way high up, always shaking hands with other hands, taking food to the mouth, writing, combing, he's always lifted up in worship. I mean, have you ever seen a foot lifted up in worship? Have you ever heard a guy say to a girl, I want to hold your feet? You know, what good am I? I don't really belong to the body. I guess the body could do without me. Or what if the ear could speak? You know, that weird cartilage on the side of your head. What if the ear said, it must be so good to be an eye. You know what you need to be a good Christian? You need to be able to see and read your Bible. The eyes are the windows to the soul. The ears are full of wax. Have you heard people work out to the ear of the tiger? No, it's the eye of the tiger. No one wants to go see a monument named Dubai Ear that's just gross. So here's Paul's point and exhortation to these members. These believers who were underestimating their spirit-given gifts, he says to them, look, these puffed-up Corinthians have a wrong view of their gifts, but so do you. Your opinion is equally grievous to the Spirit. What you think of yourself ultimately doesn't matter. What you feel about your gift doesn't matter. What matters is what God says about your grace gifts. Just because you think your gifts are less significant doesn't make it so. Just because you think that showing acts of mercy or giving generously or teaching the kids at children's ministry doesn't really matter because nobody sees that. It's not getting up before the congregation or, and preaching or leading in worship just because you think that doesn't make you any less part of the body, says Paul. You see, that sort of thinking is an insult to the sovereign spirit who gives you these gifts as he sees fit. Besides, look at verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? Just imagine the human body were just an eyeball, kind of just rolling around, doing nothing other than seeing. I mean, what a grotesque-looking thing that would be. Of course, it would be getting a lot of dirt in it because it has no head, no eyelids, no feet to stand up and keep off the ground. Watch out for that rock, eye. Oh, but wait, it can't hear you because it has no ears. Can you imagine what would happen? Can you imagine what this congregation would look like if there was only preaching all the time, no serving, no helping, no acts of mercy? What a sorry excuse of a church we would be. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? 
you know, your ear is not going to be of much help when you need to discern whether that dish that you left out overnight has gone rotten or not. No, you need your nose. Brothers, this sermon would not be possible without several people working and serving quietly behind the scenes so that I can come prepared to serve you. You know, we are able to rent this place and buy books and pay salaries because of generous givers. We're amazed when we hear of all the wonderful counseling that happens in the homes of our people. But do you stop and praise God for the gift of hospitality that was extended and exercised to make that counseling possible in the first place? Brothers and sisters, don't underestimate your gifts. The body is only the body because you are a part of it. A body with a missing foot is handicapped. Your gifts matter whether they are visible or not. Your attendance matters because your ministry matters. We depend on you. Your spirit-empowered service is necessary for the spiritual growth of this congregation because that is God's will for His church. Look at verses 18 to 19. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. God the Holy Spirit, by His sovereign design, by His sovereign will, has given you a gift. He decided whether He would give you the gift of teaching or the gift of helps. He decided whether He would give you the gift of leading or the gift of administrating. He decided whether He would enable you to quietly extend hospitality and minister to many or enable you to count the offering with great contentment. What He has not done is to equip you to say, I don't fit. I'm good at nothing. He's not done that. That would make God a liar. And that would dishonor what Christ has done. Brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force or a source of power. He is a person. The third person of the Trinity, and He has arranged, He has appointed you to serve your brothers and sisters in particular ways, so get busy doing that. What could be a better use of your time in light of eternity? Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. You are necessary. But don't make the same mistake those puffed-up members were making. Remember, you need them too. God's design is for unity. This is what Jesus prayed for in John 17. Jesus prayed like this, that they, His disciples, may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. John 17, 21. Our unity in diversity is a manifestation of Trinitarian glory. And friends, that is a great gospel witness to the unbelieving world. But there's another kind of bizarre thinking that can slip into the church. And so Paul turns around and addresses those who thought too highly of their gifts. 
So here's the third lesson we can learn. Don't overestimate your gifts and your place in the church. Don't overestimate your gifts and your place in the church. Look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Again, using that metaphor of the human body, Paul instructs those who felt that they had the superior gifts. Friends, even with the human body, we are still discovering the wonders of God's design. Did you know that there was a time when people thought that the thyroid gland had no use? Well, not anymore. The humble appendix, which was once thought to be vestigial, is now being studied for how it helps our immune system. Friend, if you walk into church looking for the loudest, smartest, busiest, and the most prominent person, then I fear you're thinking just like the world. Thinking just like your culture, esteeming what culture esteems and places value upon. Don't think about spiritual gifts apart from God's redeeming purposes for the body of Christ. Or have you forgotten how God works? 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So do not be surprised that in this body, if God does some of His best work quietly through gifts that are less showy, Beloved, your gifts are important. They are necessary. But don't overestimate your gifts and place in the body. As you're praying through the membership directory this week, consider ways that people have been quietly serving through their less visible gifts, gifts of service, exhortation. Think about those helpful reminders, those gentle rebukes, those encouragements, those words fitly spoken. Those many hours of counsel, those acts of service done every week, reflect on the Spirit's work and give thanks to God for these dear brothers and sisters. And then thank them and tell them how much you appreciate their labor of love. Brothers, even God's design of the human body demonstrates that the weaker, less visible parts are indispensable. Look at verses 22 to 24. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. You know this. Your spinal cord may have the consistency of toothpaste, but you won't be able to make any movements without a well-functioning nervous system. Remember, all it takes is one tiny little valve in your heart to malfunction, and boy, you're in big trouble. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. What's he saying? Paul says that there are certain parts of the body that if exposed would be shameful. He's talking about our sexual and intimate parts. 
In other words, you honor those parts by actually covering them. You treat them with modesty, which our more presentable parts, like our face and hands, do not require. But God has so composed the body, He has intentionally put together members and given gifts to them. That word compose suggests a harmony of different things. In His wisdom, this is what He has done with His new creation, the church. What has He done? Giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. See, just as God has decided in the human body which part ought to be less presentable and which part more presentable, which part needs a covering and which doesn't, in the same way, He decides which member receives a more visible gift and which member a less visible gift. He makes one gift prominent and not the other. But guess what? That should not lead to division, but unity. His design should not lead to division, but unity. And here's why He does it in this way. And this brings us to our fourth and final lesson. Membership is designed for loving care and unity. Here's the reason for God's varied distribution of gifts. Look at verses 25 to 27. Why does He do it this way? That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care or deep concern for one another. Friends, those differences in giftings, prominent gifts versus not so prominent gifts, word gifts versus deed gifts, God intentionally means for us to see those differences so that we can work together to minister to one another. How do we do that? Verse 26, by entering into each other's lives and entering into each other's needs. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Beloved, do you remember how the whole body came together when Albert's wife passed away? Not everyone played an equal role in ministering to him. Albert himself can testify to that. Some exhorted him, some served, some gave, many sang, some prayed, some stayed up late to sit with him in silence. This is how the members with diverse gifts are meant to function, to minister in loving unity. Beloved, we all do not and cannot care in the same way. This is why you have a plurality of elders even. The brothers that I have the privilege of serving with have the God-given gifts to do what I cannot do. We make up for each other's weaknesses because God has gifted us differently. Beloved, would you look around carefully? Think intentionally? Identify needs? And minister to one another? It cannot be, it cannot be that you're a Christian with a God-given gift with nothing to do. God doesn't make mistakes. We're all called to care for one another. We suffer together 
and we rejoice together. Next Saturday, we will get together and rejoice with Paul and Christine at their baby shower. And once again, you will get to see different members ministering to one another differently with their spiritual gifts so that the members may have the same care for one another. Paul says to the Corinthians, look at what God has done in your midst. Look at verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Did you notice he places tongues right at the end? Tongues are great, but they're not everything. God has appointed, He has chosen, and gifted people differently. Notice how He lists these. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. He's not listing these in order of importance, but in temporal order, an order in which the church is established. The apostles and the prophets are foundational gifts, followed by teachers who instruct and apply the apostolic word. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. The church, according to Ephesians 2.20, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. Through these varied gifts of grace, through these manifestations of the Holy Spirit, God is building His church. And so He asks these Corinthians a series of questions to which the answers are all an obvious no. Verses 29 to 30. Are all apostles? What's the answer? Say it loud. No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. This alone should be sufficient in demolishing the Pentecostal position. Not all speak in tongues. And then he says this, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. Now, wait a minute. Why would he say that? He's just spent so many verses arguing not to pit one gift against another. <coughs> Why does he now command them to strive after the higher or greater grace gifts? Well, one way to understand this is to look at that word that is translated as earnestly desire. It's one word in the Greek, and it's directed to the church, to all of you, you all, second person plural. So perhaps Paul is saying this as a matter of fact. God has given gifts to each member as He has determined. Uh, you should not look down on one gift or consider another as superior. Do all speak in tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But you all earnestly desire the higher gifts. In other words, this is an indirect rebuke. You're desiring the gifts that you think are greater. And I will show you a still more excellent way. Or as the New King James puts it, and yet I show you a more excellent way. In other words, you desire greater gifts. Okay, let me show you the best way to think about gifts. A more excellent way to be spiritual people is to be marked by Christian love. That should be your motive. Without love, these gifts don't mean anything. Don't chase after them for personal glory. Desire them so that you can build one another up in love. That's where he's heading. 
So whether you translate this word, desire, earnestly desire the greater gifts, whether you translate that word as a command or as a statement of fact, depends on the context. It does seem like the context demands that this is a rebuke. And Paul is now going to teach them how to view the purpose of these gifts through the lens of Christian love. Now, on the other hand, you can read this straightforwardly. It's a command. People would say, this is a command because look at chapter 14, verse 1. He says the same thing. Earnestly desire, not the higher gifts, but spiritual gifts. Or chapter 14, verse 39. Earnestly desire to prophesy. Clearly, those are commands in chapter 14. I agree, the context fits. But the question is, what does it mean here in this context, in keeping with Paul's argument in chapter 12? Now, irrespective of how you read it, as a statement of fact that he's rebuking, or if you're reading it as a command, either way, Paul is going to show us how to rightly think about the gifts. Right? How to rightly think about the gifts. So you can take it as a command, as a preparation for chapter 14. There he's going to argue that prophecy is greater than tongues because it builds people up. So earnestly desire prophecy. He's going to teach us what greater means. He's going to teach us to define what that means. He doesn't want us to chase after the gifts that inflate our cultural egos. But he wants us to desire the gifts that lovingly build up the church. The more excellent way is the way of love. So irrespective of how you read that, Paul wants to tell us that our motives for pursuing those gifts ought to be love. Chase after the gifts that build up the body. Beloved, your gifts have been given to you for a reason, a glorious reason to lovingly build up the body, to beautify the bride of Christ. Don't let the values of this world, this world that is passing away, don't let it influence how you think of your place in this congregation. Your gifts don't assign value to you. Your identity, your value, and your purpose is found in Christ. You are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So give yourself to the work that will last into eternity. And let all that you do be done in love. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would now give us the grace and the humility to serve one another so that the unbelieving world would be able to see that we belong to Jesus. Help us rejoice in our spiritual gifts. Help us reach out to others, to look out for opportunities to serve and to esteem and to honor one another. Help us now to walk by faith, in love, and full of hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.